uh, we come again to uh, one of my favorite times in the week where we get to open God's Word. And as Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it, uh, we are given the mind of God uh, through the preaching of God's Word. So I invite you to open your Bibles to James chapter 1. James 1. It will be in verses 17 and 18. James 1, verses 17 and 18. Follow as I read James 1, starting in verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Father, we once again come before your word and we are amazed because in your word, the, the very word of truth, you have revealed to us the words of life and your ways of righteousness. And so it is in an it is an incredible grace, Lord, in our lives that we can open your word and behold its truth. Uh, help us tonight to grasp your goodness to us. Uh, may your word, by the power of the Spirit, do a work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. As we begin, I, wanna I want you to recall a common experience that I'm sure uh, many of us have had um, at a time when either during Christmas or a birthday, when you gave uh, your friend or your sibling a gift, maybe your best friend or the sibling that you like to banter with most. Now, this gift was probably in a very unassuming box that had a suspicious weight to it. Uh, it was under the unassuming, occasion-appropriate gift wrap that there was, of course, a suspicious layer of duct tape. And inside that box, which, of course, was probably an empty box from the latest-gen console that you went to way too many Best Buys to procure, uh, that there was another box and another box and more duct tape. And, of course, suspiciously, as your friend opens it all, uh, you're filming. And finally, they open the last box, a rock, or a phone book, or last year's uh, unwanted white elephant gift that keeps getting passed around your friend group. Uh, we've all probably have, the, have had the experience of having given or received uh, this kind of trick gift. But of course, because you're such a sweet and true friend, uh, of course, afterward, you always, always uh, give an actual thoughtful gift of some kind of value with the gift re receipt tucked considerately inside because you're sweet like that. Uh, Matthew 7 tells us in Jesus' words uh, this same concept, that there is uh, an instinct in all of us, even after the best trick gift with the impossible duct tape, uh, that we are inclined to give good gifts to each other. Uh, Jesus himself says in Matthew 7, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Well, tonight in our passage, James draws from this truth uh, in his half-brother Jesus' great Sermon on the Mount. And God knows we need this reminder. We need this look at his goodness. We need to pause and acknowledge that God, uh, who gives us all things, gives us all good things. 
to the one who so generously and graciously guides us along life's trail with his good gifts, uh, not with meager bread crumbs, but with five-course meals of his infinite goodness and kindness. You see, Grace on Campus, as we approach Thanksgiving, if we're honest, our hearts are not naturally uh, drawn to give thanks to God. We've worked hard and we have earned all that is good in our lives down to the very last dollar and cent. Um, Or at least for others of you, you deserve what you have because after all, there's nothing much in your life that is that bad that seems worth punishing, at least from God's perspective for you. And in fact, a good God would reward your faithfulness, right? You deserve it for all your studies and your efforts. But there's other times and others of you uh, where at times you don't believe that God is good. Uh, You can't see that God is good. But it is not that God is not good. It's because the trial or the temptation that you are facing simply is obscuring uh, the goodness of God in this momentary affliction. If we're honest, Grace on Campus, our sense of entitlement and thanklessness at times may be one of the ugliest and most pervasive sins of omission against our good and gracious and generous King. We live in a land of plenty and we're too busy gorging ourselves to notice the hand of God pouring out his blessing in our lives. At best, we may thank him in sort of a general way before family meals or apartment meals. But we do it half-heartedly and with one eye open, so to speak. Our cup continually floweth over, but our hearts don't, don't, don't overflow with thanksgiving like they should. Tonight, in James 1, this is a poignant reminder that true faith acknowledges God's blessing and then responds in, tr- in trust, and then responds in thankfulness. True faith acknowledges God's blessings, and then responds in trust and thankfulness. So tonight, from James 1, we'll see three truths about the goodness of God that draw us toward trust and thanksgiving. Truth number one is this. God is the source of all good God is the source of all good things. We'll see that in the first half of verse 17. Look there again. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Here in the beginning of verse 17, we see this truth plain and clear. God is the origin, the source of all that is good. He is the fount from which every blessing springs. He is the source of all good things. Very simple. Last week we saw that God cannot be the source of our temptation because by his very nature, God himself cannot be tempted by evil. No part in him, not even a small part of his very heart, can be drawn toward evil in any way. Well, tonight in verse 17 we see a twin truth that not only... Is God not the source of our temptation to sin? James says, well, every good gift and every perfect gift, in fact, is from above, from God. Well, just like we have a tendency to blame God in our moments of temptation, we saw last week, uh, a propensity for shifting blame uh, away from ourselves. Well, in our blessings, we have a tendency to forget the goodness of God we have a propensity for tracing the good in our life to our own achievement. It's quite the opposite, in fact, in in a sense. Uh, We trace it to our own hard work, our own securing the bag. But in verse 17, we see very plainly, it is God who is the giver of all that is good in our lives. Uh, From the heights of uh, apparent and obvious blessing at times, to the depths of his goodness in trials. 
whether it be smooth sailing or it is when we are tossed about by waves of trials, God is the source of all good things in each and every situation. You see, whether you get into the program that you've been trying to get into or you grow in your trust because you're rejected from that program, God is the source of all that is good in each. Whether you are in the relationship you wanted to be in or you grow in contentment because you are single right now, God is the source of all that is good in each. Whether the experimental treatment works or the illness is terminal and untreatable, God is still the source of all that is good in each. Whatever your station in life, all that is apparently and obviously good now, and all that is good that you cannot now see as good, that you will only see as good in hindsight, or that you will only see as good in eternity, all that is good in your life, is from God. That God is the source of all good things is rooted in His very nature. His role as the creator of all things. Uh, turn with me to uh, the best place to see this. Genesis 1. The very beginning of scriptures. And we see that this truth that all good things come from God is rooted in creation and in God's role as creator. Look at chapter 1, verse 4. And God saw that the light was good after he said, let there be light, and there was light. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 10, after creating the dry land and forming the seas, and God saw that it was good. In chapter 1, verse 12, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, and which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Uh, verse 18, after creating the sun and the moon and separating light from darkness, God again saw that it was good. And in verse 21, he creates sea creatures and fish, and the birds of the air, look there, and God saw that it was good. And all the sushi lovers said amen. In verse 25, after creating livestock, are you meat eaters, and creeping things, don't eat those, and beasts of the earth. The end of verse 25, God saw that it was, what, good. And then chapter 1, verse 26, God creates man in his own image. Let's look at that verse. It's just so important. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then he commissions them. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over all the earth's creatures. And then drop down to verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. In creation, all that God spoke into existence is a reflection and a manifestation of his own goodness, his own nature as the good God. That's why Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. And so we see the goodness of God in creation, rooted in the good God, the creator. To understand the goodness of God a little bit further, Joel Beakey describes it this way. He says, the goodness of God is a term that can have the sense of ethical or moral uprightness, but often denotes the divine kindness, benevolence, and forgiveness. God exhibited his goodness in the work of creation, 
and he showers it upon his people so that they marvel at his exceedingly great goodness. Another theologian, Stephen Charnock, says it this way, goodness is the brightness and the loveliness of our majestical creator. I love that. And Louis Burkhoff says it's the benevolent interest of God toward his creatures. It's directional. Turn back to James. And so uh, rooted in creation, but extending to all of life, God's goodness is displayed and demonstrated over and over. And especially, we see throughout Scripture, this goodness is manifested toward God's people. And to think of Israel, uh, God, in His goodness, uh, guides them and provides for them and forgives them and disciplines them and loves Israel faithfully despite their sin. God's good gifts to His people are evident throughout. Uh, Israel's questioning, it's met with quail. Uh, They're murmuring, met with manna. They're whining, replied to with water from the rock at Meribah. God does not spare good things, good gifts from those who are His. And for those who are His in Christ, God's goodness is also, and even more so, evident. So James here says every good and perfect gift is from above. Or literally, every good thing given, if you have NASB, you see this, every good thing given and every perfect gift. There's two different words here used for what in some translations is just one word, the word gift. And many translations take it as a compound. They say good and perfect gift. One of these words seems focused on the act of giving, the verb in a sense, and the other on the gift as an entity, as a noun, so to speak. Uh, There is sort of a cross-hatching, a comprehensiveness, so to speak, to the quality and the value of these gifts, of God's act of giving each gift, but also the gifts themselves. This, in concept, reminds us of Uh, Chapter 1, verse 5. Look back there. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who, who, what, gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given to him. You see, it is in God's nature to give. In verse 5, it's wisdom. Here in verse 17, it's all things good. God's generous giving of good gifts out of his characteristically good nature is echoed throughout the scriptures. Just listen to a few passages. 2 Peter 1.3 His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Um, a famous one, Psalm 34.8 Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Uh, Psalm 145, the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. God's goodness in character is evident, and so is his giving, and so are his gifts. Part of college ministry is to help you guys mature as young adults. Well, here's a little something. It's for free tonight, okay? Hop on Amazon after Bible study and buy a box of thank you cards. Buy a box of thank you cards. Uh, There is something uh, authentic and earnest and old school and slow down a little bit. Uh, Pause and think about what you're thankful for for this person. Kind of vibe to thank you cards that make them far and away better than the thank you text. THX. There's something gratifying and gratitude inducing about a pen hitting paper. A thank you card is a humble gesture of appreciation. 
It's a pause to slow down and think about what you're grateful for. Well, Christian, in the view of the goodness of God here, in this one phrase in this verse, uh, the only right response is a response of thankfulness. In our lives, there must be significant moments where we stop and we think in a thank you card kind of way about how God has been good to us. There must be authentic and earnest moments of appreciation to God, who is the giver of all that is good in our lives. Uh, Christian, your prayers ought not to be vain repetitions that give lip service to God for his good gifts, but rather cognizant, heartfelt, and specific rehearsals of God's goodness and radiant worship to the giver of all things good. And so first, we've seen here that God is the source of all things good. Secondly, we see the truth also in verse 17, that God is unchangingly good. God is unchangingly good. We see here in the second half of verse 17 the truth that God is good. And he is good unchangingly so. He is good all the time. Look again at verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change that he gives good and perfect gifts stems from the fact that he is unchangingly good. His giving of good is rooted in his goodness, as we've seen. And he is unswervingly, unflinchingly, and unfailingly good. It's a truth so simple, it's so easy to pass over. Uh, Here, James describes God as the Father of lights. God who on the very first day of this world said, let there be light, and there was light. And he saw that the light was good. God who on the fourth day created the sun and the moon and the stars, and he saw that what he spoke into being was good. And so this is the God, James says, the Father of lights, who from day one, even until now, is the source of all that is good. Psalm, 30, Psalm 136 explodes in thanksgiving toward the Father of lights. It says there, give thanks to him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. God, the Father of lights, we see in the Bible, also is himself light. You see, it's a picture not just of his generous giving of good, but also the moral goodness of God. First John 1 John 1.5 God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. In John 8.12 Jesus says of himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. Christian, it's why you are called to let your light shine before men as someone who reflects your heavenly Father. It's why in Philippians 2, we are to, as children of God, amidst a crooked and twisted generation, shine as lights in the world. We're to reflect our Heavenly Father as the Father of lights in His moral goodness. In 1 Thess 5, we are to be children of light or children of the day. 
And so here in James, light illustrates uh, this unchanging goodness of God, both his benevolence in giving good gifts, but also in his moral perfection, his moral goodness. And so James says, with God there is no variation or shadow due to change. You see, while the sun and the moon and the stars that he created orbit and shift and change, uh, the light of the sun affecting the growth of flora and fauna of the earth, and the waxing and waning of the moon causing the ocean's tides to ebb and flow, with the Father of lights there is no such variation or shifting shadow. He is constant. He is unchanging. This is the goodness of God seen through the lens of what theologians call the immutability of God. The immutability of God. His unchangeable, constant nature. It's what feeds into His faithfulness. It's, it's what feeds into His steadfast covenant love to His people. His immutability. And it's not just that he doesn't change, it's that he cannot change. It is his very nature to be the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is unchangeably and constantly the ultimate source and standard of all that is good. Daylight savings time that just passed is everyone's least favorite day, I think. Next to tax day, maybe, if you've grown up. Some people blame it on farmers. I think we have an actual case for government deception here. Daylight savings affects our sleep, our mood, if we're honest. Half of you guys lose your ability to drive straight when it's daylight savings. Uh, We all become like forest animals before the great storm. Just something ain't right when it's daylight savings time. Daylight savings time is our, I would say, futile human attempt uh, to adjust for the changes in the amount of daylight between the different seasons. I think somebody's got a good political platform to run on in 2024, the anti-daylight savings crew. With God, the Father of lights, who is himself light, we need not, like we do with daylight savings, adjust for or accommodate. We need not account for any variation or shifting as if he would be good to us in one moment uh, and against us in the next. He does not change. He does not waver. He is always good. The only suitable response to this truth that God does not shift or change in his goodness toward us. This next week, Thanksgiving, and every week, is to stop and realize uh, that we need to thank him, but that we can and must trust him in anything. That we can run to him because he will not change. And he is always good to us. When we face trials and temptations, uh, the ones that we have seen in this first chapter, We have a heavenly Father who is unchangingly good in the face of all of those trials and temptations. In full faith, we must respond with trust to the Father of lights. Because God is unchangingly good, you can trust him in every changing situation. Because God's goodness is unwavering, you can run to him in unwavering trust. God is always good. And so we ought to always trust him. The third truth we see in this passage tonight uh, that helps us toward trust and thanksgiving is this, that God is the giver 
of the best gift. God is the giver of the best gift. Finally, in verse 18, we see and respond in thankfulness and trust that God is the giver of the best gift, and that is this new life in Him. New life in Him. Look at verse 18. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. This verse is underrated. Of all the mountaintops throughout uh, Ephesians and the book of Romans and all of the great passages about the grace of God come down in the form and the man of Jesus Christ and demonstrations of God's goodness and kindness toward us as His creatures uh, to be restored to a, a right relationship with Him. This verse so beautifully and clearly pictures the reality of the new birth. It's what theologians call the new birth. It's this idea, this concept that God, uh, what says here, brought us forth. Now think back to the imagery of verse 15 in talking about temptation. Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth or brings forth, what? Sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It's the same word, brings forth. And so here, James is drawing an obvious contrast between that which our desires bring forth in moments of temptation, and then now, here, that which God brings forth. Our desires bring forth sin and ultimately spiritual death, but God brings forth all that is good. The very best of which is that He brings us forth to new life in Him. And so here we look at the very best gift of God, who is the giver of all good gifts. And he gives to those who would receive it the new birth. This is what we refer to when we call someone a born-again Christian. Or the five-syllable theological term for it, regeneration. Turn to John 3. We need to see what this new birth is all about. John 3 helps us to understand and see uh, the new birth. Here we see Nicodemus, a Pharisee a member of the Sanhedrin, he comes to Jesus at night and he's wondering something. He's wondering how it is that Jesus does the miracles, how he does the works that he does. Nicodemus is in awe of Jesus and he wants to know the secret sauce. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Uh, Look actually at the end of chapter 2 for context. In verse 23. Uh, Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, it was Jesus. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so here we see that Jesus, knowing Nicodemus' heart, that we see he knows the hearts of man at the end of chapter 2, Nicodemus comes to Jesus with a question. How do you do what you do? And Jesus completely sidesteps his question because he knows Nicodemus' heart. He says, I know you want to know how I do this, but you need something more. It's kind of a John MacArthur-esque way of answering a question. Someone's got a dumb question in the Q&A, and John just says, well, the real question is this. And that's what Jesus does here. Jesus says, I know you have that question, but here's something that you need a little bit more. You need to hear about the new birth. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered him, 
Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 4, Nicodemus picks up on Jesus' metaphor. He says, it says, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus says in verse 5, truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born Again, Jesus knew that Nicodemus needed a regeneration by the Holy Spirit. He needed a spiritual transformation that was not of his own efforts. This is a new birth, spiritual life given to him that was of God and not of man. Not of rite or ritual or regulation as Nicodemus himself had up to this point in his life so rigidly and regularly maintained as the teacher of Israel. Nicodemus is looking to add to his resume. He he wants what Jesus has. And Jesus says, no, you need this. You don't need to add something more. You don't need to do more things or keep up the religious externals. There must instead be a radical change in your inward reality. And you cannot, Nicodemus, accomplish it yourself. You must be born again. You might be here tonight and thinking in a similar way to Nicodemus that joining GOC or going to church or even joining a small group is uh, your way of getting good with God, getting right with God. Uh, you for a while were walking in a way in your life where you don't know what was going on. Or even right now as we think about it, you know you don't know where you stand with God. And you think that adding something on is going to help. Uh, adding on accountability or adding on church attendance, or adding on Friday nights, or adding on fellowship with people. And those are all good things. But if you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, you must be born again. And that is something that you cannot accomplish yourself. God brings us forth by the word of truth. And it is his work of salvation in the lives of those who know him. And so ask somebody around you who knows Jesus, how can I know this Jesus? You must be born again. You must be born again by the water and the spirit, John 3 says. Uh, Titus 3 speaks similarly describes regeneration as the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. These are a reference to one of my favorite passages, Ezekiel 36. Why don't you turn there? You need to see this. Ezekiel 36. And we get a little bit more of what exactly regeneration is, how it works, how God brings us forth. Ezekiel 36 In verse 25, God is speaking to the house of Israel. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. Yahweh says, I will sprinkle sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. You see, God promises to give his people a new heart, a heart of flesh that will actually beat and pump spiritual blood. But God also promises here to sprinkle clean water on them, to cleanse them from all their uncleannesses and idols. This is the washing of regeneration or 
the renewal of the wa- of water, uh, so to speak, in John 3. Uh, this new birth involves cleansing of sin. The water or the washing of regeneration. But this regeneration is not only of water or washing, but also of the Spirit. Uh, Romans 8 speaks of uh, this life so vividly that the Christian has in the Spirit. Uh, no longer according to the flesh and its desires, but according to the Spirit. Uh, verse 11 of Romans 8 says that the Spirit dwells in you. First Corinthians describes the Christian and says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so this regeneration, this new birth involves a cleansing and a washing from sin, but also God's giving of His Spirit to dwell in us. And this is how God brought us forth. This is the new birth. This is new life in Him. The very best gift of all the gifts He gives us. And it's not simply a refresh or a a dressing up of the old man. But it's a new man, as Ezekiel 36 describes. A new heart, as James pictures it. Being brought forth as if a baby, a new human being, a new creature. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. By the Spirit's work, God takes us who are dead in our sin and brings us forth into new life by the very best gift that he gives. And that's the new birth. We all know somebody who takes a little bit too much credit for anything. The group project. We all go whitewater rafting. When you're playing pickup basketball. When you talk about who actually discovered the cool taco spot whether theologically or in our hearts, in our flesh, throughout church history and in every one of our lives, man has claimed too much credit for our salvation. Tonight, a simple reflection on regeneration, on the new birth, helps us to consider how much credit we should actually take. What part did you have in your physical birth? Do you remember the day that you were born? What did you contribute to your being born? Nothing. And it's the same with your spiritual birth. You contribute nothing to it. And God, by His washing of your uncleanness and his giving of his spirit brought you forth to life in him. This work, turn back to James, James says is of his own will. It's not of us. It's all God's work. Seminary nerds like to say salvation is monergistic. It's of God's own will. His own initiative. No one told God what to do. He didn't pull regeneration out of the suggestion box. This work of regeneration is of his own will. And in this context, of his own giving. This word will here isn't just something that God wished would happen. This is his productive will. He set out to do this. This was his desire that he accomplished with full certainty that it would come to fruition. John 1, verses 12 and 13 make this clear. It says there, But to all who did receive him, he believe, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born 
not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. James also says here that God brought us forth, not only by God's own will, but by the word of truth. By the word of truth. This phrase is found in a few places throughout the New Testament, and if not for time, we would go there. Uh, But in 2 Timothy 2.15, it refers to uh, the Bible as a whole. In Ephesians 1, verse 13, it refers specifically uh, to the gospel, uh, the word of truth. And in Colossians 1.5, a similar reference uh, to the gospel specifically. Uh, Now it's more likely, based on the context, that the word of truth here is a reference to the Bible, God's word as a whole. As we'll see next quarter, James goes on to the end of chapter 1 and talks about the effect of the word of truth in our lives, that we must be doers of the word and not hearers only. And so the word of truth uh, is God's revealed word. And so of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Uh, This is a wonderful spiritual reality. And isn't that how it works, by the word of truth? Think about your own salvation, your own new birth. Wasn't it that God had you sit under that pastor's teaching? Wasn't it that you had that friend who took you through the book of John or the book of First John? Wasn't it the word of God through that one summer where you just had turmoil in your heart and you just read and read and read the word of truth. It's a beautiful thing that by the word of truth, uh, God brings us forth. And James finally tells us the purpose for this new birth, this bringing us forth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Uh, this term, first fruits, is a reference to God's law in Exodus, that God's people were to bring the best of their crop in offering to Yahweh. And so we are the best and the first also of God's eternal righteous reign over all things. The first fruits of His creatures. First John shows us that if you are born again, Uh, You have a new nature. You have new desires. Uh, You have a new love for God. 1 John 2, 29 uh, tells us that you are born of God, then you practice righteousness. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 9, if you are born of God, you don't make a practice of sinning. You cannot keep on sinning because that person has been born of God, John says. Chapter 4, verse 7 says, Whoever has been born of God and knows God loves his brother. Chapter 5 tells of a love for God himself, for those who have been born of God. And so it's in this way that we are a kind of first fruits of his creatures. As human beings created in the image of God as the capstone of his creation, We are the premier examples of God's own goodness. We demonstrate, we represent what it is to be a new creation. We are, as the creation groans in eager longing, we are in our actions, uh, in our lives, a foretaste of this new creation. Christian, we are in our life, in the light, in our practicing of righteousness, a sneak peek of the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is the new birth, the best of all of God's good gifts. 1 Samuel 7 tells of a time of revival for the people of Israel. It was a time of national repentance for sin. Uh, God's people destroyed their idols in 1 Samuel 7, and they began to wholeheartedly 
seek Yahweh. Well, God's people gathered at Mizpah to confess their sin, and Samuel there offers a sacrifice, a burnt offering. And while Samuel is sacrificing the burnt offering, during the sacrifice, the Philistines attack. Chapter 7, verse 10 says this, But Yahweh thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. Now after the dust settles, Samuel, in thankfulness, uh, puts up a memorial stone, a stone of remembrance to the Lord, and he calls it an Ebenezer, a stone of help, literally. A stone commemorating God's supernatural help against the Philistines. And so every time God's people would pass by Mizpah, they would see the stone and remember God's goodness to them. Grace on campus, we have so much occasion in our lives to raise Ebenezer's, to memorialize God's goodness to us. Let tonight be one of those moments. Let next Thursday be one of those moments. In every good and perfect gift, every sign of God's good providence in your life, every mark of his goodness in your life, would you in thankfulness and trust raise an Ebenezer so that in your life you would be able to look back and be reminded of all of the instances of God's goodness to you. And so let's respond to God's goodness to us with trust and with thankfulness, even tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for in your word we see very plainly your goodness to us. That we are your people, and you are our God. You have shown your kindness in so many ways. All good things come from you. And the very best of those gifts is new life, regeneration, the new birth, life in Christ. And so we rejoice, Lord, before the fount of every blessing, and that is you. Uh, we sing in thankfulness even now. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.